Welcome to the Ashoka Systems Change Podcast, a new six-part podcast series from Ashoka, the world's largest network of social entrepreneurs. My name is Bregel Barron, and together with Odin Mullenbein, lead of the systems unit at Ashoka Globalizer, we explore some of the key ideas and approaches used by social entrepreneurs to achieve systems change. In these interviews, we discuss key dimensions of systems thinking, like approaches to collaboration, leadership, and crucially funding, through the experience of Ashoka Changemakers, working as systems entrepreneurs. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jeru Bilamoria to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. Jeru is the founder of numerous successful and award-winning international NGOs, including Childline India Foundation and Child Helpline International, which have facilitated a global movement for protection of children and youth and are active in more than 180 countries. After Ten International, which works to support the development of young people, has, together with global partners, provided social and financial education to over 1 million children in 100 countries. In 2011, Jeru founded Child and Youth Finance International, a global system change organization set up to ensure financial inclusion and economic citizenship education for young people. Child and Youth Finance International currently works with a network of more than 60,000 partners and stakeholders in more than 160 countries and has reached 40 million children and youth worldwide with a combination of financial and educational services. Hi, Odin. Hi, Fergal. So I'm very much looking forward to speaking to Jeru about her brilliant work at CYFI. And could you perhaps just set the scene a little bit again and tell us a little bit about what you think is interesting about her work from a systems perspective? In the first episode, our guest Jordan Casselow talked about iLines, a group of partners that works on a systems level to promote access to eyeglasses to everyone. Because the idea of collaboration is so important, we invited the founder of another famous systems change network, CYFI. Giroux will tell us more about how these networks can be created and what kind of leadership is needed to keep them together. Giroux calls her approach honest brokering, and she has an incredible track record, and her approach is quite different from a traditional understanding of leadership within organizations, so there's a lot to learn. One particular aspect to look out for is what we call openness, the ability to give up control and to keep your personal and organizational ego in check so that it doesn't stand in the way of greater impact. Thanks, Odin. So thank you very much, Jeru, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's going to be interesting. I'm excited to chat with you and yes, learn I'm, morals. I'm very much looking forward to learning about what you're doing, your journey, and focusing on some of the key elements that have made such a success of CYFI and your growth over time. Can you maybe just set the scene a little bit? And can you tell me about CYFI, how you came to set it up? and the journey at the beginning. Okay, so CYFI actually emerged from a group of people. So before CYFI, I was heading Aflatoon, and Aflatoon was an organization focusing on what we said, social and financial education for children and young people. And we had a campaign where we said we will try to reach 75 countries and a million children in a period of three years. And we thought that would help open the doors for us to be able to start working with more governments and trying to get the governments to adopt policies, etc. 
we did reach our campaign goal of 75 countries i think we reached much more and we also exceeded the million target by, by i think 200000 or 1.2 million but what we did realize in all of that is that though we had scaled by normal standards i think it was okay not too much but it was okay we were not able to really get the governments to start saying okay this is fantastic let's look at policies and a lot of the programs were getting stuck at the demonstration size which as we all know is a typical problem with uh, the non-profits and so either we could create a multi-million billion dollar organization doing that or we said what would be the best way to try to create an impact and at a very fast pace So we did actually Odin what I'm doing now is spoke to a ton of people asked for their advice tried to get alignment and I think the biggest challenge which came was don't you think you should make yourselves start something where your role becomes redundant and all the governments or most of the governments have policies so we called a stakeholder meeting of all the key players working in the field and I think it was like a hundred plus i think 120 of the really really key people who were working in the field and we said okay this is the problem how do we go about it what do you recommend we had mckinsey to help us and together we created an action plan on how we would try to make sure that social and financial education or then from that the term emerged economic citizenship would become integrated in the financial inclusion policies of all the countries. So that's what we did. And then as you say the rest is history. And what was the root problem that you observed that you were trying to deal with? I think governments didn't want to work with one civil society organization. I know that in the non-profit sector or in social enterprise field everyone thinks is that if you are big enough then you will get a seat at the table. And then you can achieve your north star you know that's your goal my thing and what we found is that you don't always need to become this mega daddy to be able to get a seat on the table if you have a collection of smaller organizations working together you can still get a seat at the table and the change will be faster so that was the premise on which we started saying that we get all the people who are working get them together rally them around the issue and accelerate the change that's what we did now would you describe yourself as a systems entrepreneur a system change entrepreneur and when did you realize that that was a very important essential element in what would be needed in this situation to deal with the problem i don't know what i'd describe myself as so i'll leave that to you but whenever i'm working on a social issue the first question that even when i'm setting up i ask myself is what do i want to change what is the system that i want to change what is the issue that i want to change and then the organization structure actually is determined by what is the impact that needs to be created i think organizations are not important what's really important is impact so that's the guiding focus of how every one of my organizations has been structured it sounds like this has been baked in from the beginning this is something that you had from the very early stages but do you have a sense in how that's different from growing an organization you'll have seen many organizations around you that will 
approach this social enterprises in a pretty traditional way by scaling up, by growing the business? Taking a systems approach is different. Yes, I think it is different. But to me, it has never been different. Because to me, that has always been the way I have thought. But if you look at it from a management point of view, there are organizations which are very community-based. There are organizations which want to scale the organization. And then once they scale the organization, they think they can scale the system. For me, ideologically, it is you don't need to scale the organization. But if you get all the players who are working around that together, together you can change. So for me, the most important principle in change is the element of collaboration. I think for me, that is important because there's no new idea in the world and there is no new thing. We're all doing something like this from a different point of view. Some may be doing it one way, some may be doing it another way. So if we all work together, we can build off each other's strengths. And by building off each other's strengths, you can change the system faster. That's the ideological belief I come from, which has probably influenced a lot of my work. Absolutely. Can I ask you, what is the current scale of your organization and your impact? How do you measure that or how do you reflect that? I haven't been with CYFI for two years, but I can tell you CYFI's impact. CYFI, I think, works in 150 plus countries, has changed government policies and made them move in 80 plus countries. By move, I mean really move towards taking the policy and other countries are in different stages of making it happen. We have worked directly and indirectly with 100,000 organizations to mobilize the support to make this happen. Once again, even with CYFI, I started it because that's something I think I can manage to do. But I handed it over the minute I thought that there would be a better team to manage it. And I think it's also important for us as social entrepreneurs to know when our exit will be, when we are planning our entry. Yes. Now, coming back to the systems side of things again, Jeru, what systems did you work on? What systems were you focused on? What were the key systems that you wanted to change? I'm thinking particularly of focusing maybe on the education and the new banking products for children. So basically, there were two things which we were looking at. Two systems we were looking at. One was to try to change the education system to have social and financial education included in the curriculum. And the other was to work with banks to try to get them to introduce products which was child-friendly for children and young people. We basically worked through the central bank or the Ministry of Finance because financial stability means knowing financial education. And through that, we leveraged the financial system to change the education system in most countries. In some countries, we went directly to the education system. The reason we did this going through the central bank or through the Ministry of Finance to the education system is because there are many demands on the education system and therefore trying to bring about a change in the education system would probably have taken a much longer time. But by working and leveraging the financial stability aspect, which is key to central banks, we were able to leverage the education system. In addition, central banks and ministries of finance were tasked with ensuring financial inclusion. So through them, we were also able to work with banks and with other related uh, organizations, fintechs, etc. Right. 
Can you talk a little bit more maybe about the specifics of child-friendly bank accounts and why you took that approach? Essentially, what we were trying to do is get social and financial education put into the curriculum of schools. But as we all know that just talking about financial education, there was actually a research done by Professor Lou Mandel, which showed that financial education could have a negative impact if only taught as financial education. So you needed to link it to social education and you needed to link it to something practical. And when we were doing that, we worked with children and saw that if children had bank accounts, they understood financial education. They understood the concept of not just saving money, but also saving gas, water, electricity much easier. So we came up with the concept of let's try to link social and financial education to bank accounts for children. And that's why we approach banks to say, can you have bank accounts which are more child-friendly? By child-friendly bank accounts, what we were trying to do is that if a child put it 100 euros in a bank, and then at the end of the day, banks withdrew banking fees, this fees, that fees, and the children did not get any interest, then they would feel, I put in 100 euros and I got 90 euros. What's going on? they would not feel motivated to be interested in saving. So child-friendly banking had three or four main components. The first was that, A, we did it with banks and everybody, that access to children. So if children and if schools could get children to open bank accounts, we needed to have that access. B, the language in which the account was talking was not adult language, but children language. And see if the banks found it financially viable to be able to also give incentives to children. So several European banks did start giving incentives to children, you know. So these were the three main things. Can you talk about what some of your successes have been with these different systems? How do you dimensionalize the change that you wanted to achieve and have achieved? The change is that there are policies now which are now being put into practice for financial education or for financial inclusion. So I think that would be the biggest thing. What we actually did to measure our impact is working with our partners, we create and McKinsey. We created a diagnostic where we said that to be able to measure our impact, these are the impact indicators and this is how we will go to show the progress of a country. And that's how we were able to track our change. Right. And you put a bit more meat on that in terms of the scale, the adoption. Are there any other measures that you can use just to give us a sense of that? As I said, 80 countries. I think so that's an important measure. I can make it more concrete. We had an annual event called Global Money Week, and that was done in 150 plus countries. It's a week every year. We were able to ultimately officially hand it over Global Money Week to OECD. So it started as an NGO initiative. It actually started as Child and Youth Aflatoon Day when we were in Afla. We took it on to becoming Global Money Week and Child and Youth Finance International. Got in, I think there were, by the time we left, 100 plus governments officially leading Global Money Week. And when it was such a success, we said we as an NGO can continue it because it's a huge global brand with, I think, Indirect outreach reaching 100 million plus people, directly reaching 32 million kids in a week. But we said 
true impact will be when a UN organization or when a multilateral can take it on. OECD has developed something called the INSE network, which is the network for financial education. And so we approached OECD and then we, over a period of, I think, six months, have systematically and are in the process of systematically handing over Global Money Week to OECD. So it's a huge vehicle to get countries on, to monitor them and to retain them on the issue. And we have started it, scaled it, institutionalized it, and then have handed it over. That to me is how you bring about a systems change. You don't continue holding on to it. You start handing it over. Very impressive. Now, you mentioned collaboration at the beginning. It's at the heart of the way you work. I gather it's at the heart of what's been successful and it's the heart of what CYFI has done. Can you talk a little bit about collaboration? And I'm particularly interested in how you approach leadership at a systems level. Now, I know you talk about this idea of being an honest broker, and I'm interested to understand what that entails and you know how you came to realize and apply that. I don't think it is something we should make so complicated. Sorry. I think it's really very simple. We can't do anything on our own. If we think we can, then we are not being honest to ourselves. Anyone who thinks they can is being delusional. So if you want to make a success of anything, you have to collaborate. So that is extremely simple and according to me, a no-brainer. And if you have to collaborate, if people see that you're collaborating for yourself and your personal gain, they are not going to want to join in. Because why would I collaborate with you if this is about you? So you have to actually put the interests of others above interests of yourself if you want true collaboration. And that's the role of an honest broker. You have to have to constantly always do that. And it's not even really interest of others as much as it is interest of the movement and the impact of the movement or the change you want to see. Sometimes you don't even need to have a movement to do it. It's just the change you want to see. Does that make sense? Now, absolutely. But clearly, you're bringing together a very large number of organizations, which many of whom have different agendas, they have different perspectives, they are different issues on their mind. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that and how do you create this collaboration and bring people together? What's been your experience in working with people with different perspectives and different agendas? I think the most important thing in getting people together is taking it beyond the individual to the collective. Every human being wants what's best for the world. Every human being. Every human being is good. So build on the goodness. And if you build on the goodness of everyone, you get to the collective greatness. What was the hardest thing you had to do there? Actually, it was easy. Why do you think it was easy? I understand you're saying it's easy. What allowed it to be easy? Was it that everybody had the same agenda? Everybody wanted to achieve the same thing? Yeah, I think framing the collective good or framing the collective impact is what needs to be done well. So what does that mean? What would be a mistake there? I mean, you mentioned putting yourself forward or it being seen to be self-serving or somehow that you're at the center of things. But maybe beyond that, can you talk a bit? I'll actually say because currently we are trying to see how we can accelerate the SDGs, okay, with social entrepreneurs at the forefront. And uh, in doing that, as we are collecting materials, we are trying to make sure we listen to everybody 
and see what is it that really interests them in this. So I think for me, if you say what is the leadership or what is the skill, if that's what you're trying to get at, I'd say listening. Listening, learning, and then trying to piece it together. And sometimes you can't please everybody, but you try to do what is for the best interest and can actually make things move. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's very interesting. And so now, uh, Jiru, you presented your work over the years in many different fora. And one of the areas that I found very interesting is the way you looked at different ways and different roles, I guess, you play as an honest broker. And this includes, you know, convening people together, connecting them. And I'm just wondering, could we maybe talk about those individually? So maybe the first step, I guess, that you talk about is convening. And can you talk about this, what it means, maybe give an example of how it worked for you? Sure. The step before convening is always calibrating. I say calibrating is the beginning and the end because before you convene, we see who's doing what. So it is actually trying to map who is there in which field doing what. So we have a pretty decent assessment then on what is happening. So what are the different roles? You play many different roles as a broker, but what are the key roles that you've identified? And can you maybe talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so basically there are many, many roles which are there and many strategies that you use. But for purposes of simplicity, we sort of boiled it down to the five C's, co-create, convene, connect, celebrate, and calibrate. I repeat, co-create, convene, connect, celebrate, calibrate. And calibrate is a bit before and a bit after because what you have to do is when you start the movement, you start with mapping who is doing what because as I said earlier, you want to make sure everybody is involved. So that's something which you do. Then instead of saying this is what I want to do, though because you're speaking to everybody, so some sort of roadmap is emerging. But despite that, what you do is that you sort of try to get everybody together. So you convene maybe as a large group, maybe individually, maybe in small groups, and then you co-create the strategy or the roadmap for the movement. And in the process of co-creating, you're also connecting all the people. So for example, concretely, when we started with CYFI, we worked with all the 100 and plus 17 or whatever plus people who were the experts in the field to co-create the strategy. And we asked McKinsey to help us. As we were co-creating, the need emerged that you need a separate working group for research, a separate working group for education curriculum, a separate working group for banking products. So we created separate working groups. And through those working groups, they created what and they fleshed out in detail what needed to be done. And we had lots of working group meetings, so we were convening a lot. But by doing that, what we were also doing was actually evolving the ecosystem. So you had a Ministry of Education talking to the central bank in the same country and they had never spoken. Or you had an NGO brought bringing their expertise to the table with the Ministry of Finance. OECD participating, we had UNICEF. So we got all the different players to connect and by doing that, strengthening the movement. Can I ask, how do you do that convening? How do you do that? Because in some ways it's unconventional in the sense that there are very senior people 
in you know very powerful organizations presumably and others that you know have less conventional power what have you learned about convening everyone is equal let everyone brings different skills that's simple everyone is equal i always say you need to look at your hand we have five fingers all five of them are different and you pretty much need all five in different ways you know and we're all part of the hand so we are all human beings we are all part of the same sector so we can make it as complicated as we want to or we can make it as simple as we want to did you find anybody challenging that i mean you know finding central bank people to sit down maybe with you know people with less conventional background and so forth might on the face of it be something that they're used to and do you need to articulate clearly what you're about is that the philosophy underlying it when people get that does that make it a lot easier there's always some amount of conflict you know there's never something which is always so easy so i'm not about to deny that sometimes managing convenings can be challenging but by and large i think if you take it about individuals or organizations to mission it really isn't an issue excellent that's what i have found and in terms of co-creation then again any tips or any insights into what has allowed that to work for you listening listen and respect can we talk about connecting then connecting is again thanks to technology a lot of connections can be done online but i really think offline having people movement you know meeting getting them together gets a lot of ideas and then it's not just about connecting through meetings when we talk about connecting so if country a was supposedly doing something we would say hey you want to do it we can and they would say why don't you come down and do it we would say no 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 country b is actually already doing this so why don't we connect you to country b and you all work together and then if you need something from us we will so rather than becoming the central hub where you are the one who does everything you start creating an organic hub and a framework of connections which diminish your role and facilitate inter ecosystem networking that's very interesting how do you ensure that you're getting the outcome you want you know when you leave lots of different and uh, nodes i suppose or whatever in the network to connect together there could be misunderstandings there can be just uh, mistakes there can be confusion how have you managed that or what lessons or insights are there about making connection work mistakes are a way of the game so first thing i'd say is just acknowledge and say sorry if you've made a mistake and mistakes happen all the time so i think the first word i'd say you learn to say is you know if you've done something wrong acknowledge say sorry but more importantly is you try to and this was a mistake we made so i say it publicly we did not always in the beginning of the movement register all the connections we made we started doing that at a later stage so now my recommendation to anyone who is doing systems change is already start a framework where you can start recording we started doing it towards the later part and then we were able to see that when we were actively involved in creating connections the impact and the growth of the country towards achieving systems change was faster there was a direct correlation can you explain what you mean there sorry i'm not sure i understand so basically we tried to connect countries ngos to countries academics to countries the whole thing we would always do it but our mistake was we never always recorded so i would recommend to anyone who's doing it please record the connections you make hmm? that was the when we started doing it systematically 
we realized that there was a direct correlation between the countries we were helping connect to different people and the level of involvement we had with the country to the progress the country made or the pace of progress the country made towards achieving systems change. Very interesting. What about celebrating? What's that about? Don't all of us love a good party? (laughs) Yes. And don't all of us love a pat in the back? Yet we in the social sector take ourselves so seriously. So celebrating is actually celebrating the hard work that people have done. And we have found that countries loved it. Civil society loved it. Just being able to celebrate, say a thank you, give a pat on the back, countries loved it. So what kind of things are you talking about there, Giroux? For us, we had the Global Inclusion Awards where we celebrated the progress that countries had made. And we gave them an award, which was nothing major. It was just, you know, a small award. So it wasn't expensive. It wasn't anything. But we had a very strong jury, very strong diagnostic criteria, etc. And because countries wanted to be acknowledged for the work they were doing, and sometimes by getting the award, the staff were able to make things move faster in the countries, you know. We found that it was a very positive reinforcement of accelerating systems change. How do you actually make celebrating meaningful? So I think whenever you convene or whenever you celebrate, the best way to celebrate is to put the people forward and to involve as many people in the whole process as possible. So it shouldn't become about you. It should become about the whole mission and the impact. So, for example, when we had Global Inclusion Awards, we would always ask different people to give the awards. So, for Global Money Week, because in the long term, we wanted that OECD takes over Global Money Week. That was always in our brain. We always would invite OECD to give the awards or to play a major role in it. So, we would always, or we got the G20 to give awards to countries. So, we were able to take that and the representative. So it was not about you giving the awards, but it was about the systems players who could accelerate the change being at the forefront of the change. And my role would always say, more in the background, the better, because then you can achieve the change faster. That's very interesting. Can you maybe then just finally come back to this question of calibrating? And when you've got a, I guess, this network process unfolding, Can you talk a little bit about what the key skill at the heart of calibrating is? Yeah, so that we learned with CYFI later. And I also, I got better with CYFI, made the same mistake with CHI. And I'm hoping that in the next thing that we are doing with the SDGs, we are creating a base. What we don't do is as social entrepreneurs, I'll speak for myself, is we don't create a baseline against which to measure our impact. So with Calibrate, what we started halfway through the process of CYFI is we created, as I mentioned earlier with McKinsey, a diagnostic framework to be able to show the impact that the country had made and the steps it had made. But we started it like two or three years down. So it was difficult to do it with retrospect. So for me, I think that when you do a mapping, you should also create a baseline and then show what are the steps and be able to take those steps forward. So I think that's something which we should be able to do. 
That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So all of these work together. You've mentioned these are, in a sense, summary. They're, you're trying to, I guess, condense many, many different roles you're playing. But that's really interesting to see the connection together and how you've made them work and what you've learned over time. Now, one area that's not something we're necessarily going to talk about in a lot of detail, but I think is a really important question for a lot of social entrepreneurs working in the systems change area is the question of funding, which can be very challenging. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of funding? If you want to make systems change happen, donors need to think differently about how to fund organizations. End of story. If donors talk systems change and then they say, please write how many children will you reach? That's the wrong question. Because when you're talking systems change, you need to say, what is the policy that you're going to change? What is the implementation structure that you're going to change? And then if that changes, what would be the impact to the children and the population? So it's a whole different set of questions that donors need to be asking rather than how many children did you reach? How many, whatever did you train? What did you do? And the second thing is donors need to be more patient because systems change doesn't happen overnight. You can't have a one-year term cycle or even a three-year term cycle. It has to be five to seven years, and that's fast. So I would suggest to all donors who want systems change happening, especially in relation to the SDGs, they should start looking at 10-year donor cycles. With, of course, annual checks and periodic checks, but you need to be systematic, and you need to think long-term, and you need to think in a totally different way. That's my two-bitter. So you mentioned some of the traditional type of goals, which can be quantitative. They're not just quantitative, I guess, but the large element of are quantitative goals helpful when you're looking at systems change? Can they be included as well? Or from what you're saying, it's more about processes and things that are probably in a little bit, they're binary and they're either there or they're not. So before the change has happened, it might be difficult to show the scale of change that is unfolding until the change itself finally happens. Yes. So that's why I said it is a very patient capital, very patient donors. They need to acquire more patience. I also think donors should be actively part of the co-creation process. So they know what is happening and actively part of if things are not going well, because when you're working with countries, and we have examples where you've done a lot of work and the country is on the brink of going live, and then the government changes and Everybody changes and you're not back to square zero, but you're at square two. So you've lost a lot of your work. And these things also donors need to recognize. So my whole thinking is that A, donors need to change how they structure the impact criteria. B, they strongly need to be part of the co-creation process. And C, big is not beautiful. If you want true systems change, it can only happen with a collective of organizations rather than one big organization trying to make the North Star, which is the big daddy of the others. Because only when you work on an equal frame are you going to be able to get it. So I think these are the three mindsets that donors have to think differently on, in my opinion. That's very interesting. Thank you, Drew. Does that mean that you would have maybe three or five different funders and that they would be involved in the co-creation as well? Yeah, ideally two or three, not five. But yeah. They should all be involved in the co-creation. So they have a stake in the game. Yes. And they have the network. They should open their own network. They should leverage their own network. And they should think with you, you know, 
And how have you found that process talking to different funders? Have you found some funders to be more, certain types of funders to be more open to this? What's been your experience, Jeru? I think we have a long way to go. Would you say this is one of the biggest challenges operating as a systems entrepreneur? I'd say funders need to change how they think for us to be able to do it. Yes, it is a challenge. I don't think it's the biggest challenge, but I think it's in the top three. Great. Excellent. Thank you for that. Now, finally, I'm just wondering whether you have any tips that we can talk about for social entrepreneurs who are keen, interested, and thinking about collaborative systems change. Don't forget the collaborate and systems change. That's all I'd say, because you can't achieve it otherwise. Well, I think one of the things that you mentioned before is this question about ego and question about you talked about what's in it for the other people and making sure that you've got the overall collective goal in mind. But at a personal level, what does that mean as a systems entrepreneur to actually have a different perspective and not to let your ego? Or Can you talk a little bit about what you mean there? Whenever we look at this work or whenever I started, and I would also tell my teammates to take your ego and flush it down the toilet. Everyone has rolled their eyes in my team a dozen times when I've said that. Because I think that's something which is very, very key. And it's not just for you. It's also your team has to do it. I think that's what makes it quite difficult. Excellent. Because I've been thinking about this a lot, especially of late as we are taking this SDG thing forward. I think the really important thing is that the mission should be about any individual. And therefore, the spirit of collaboration should be the key thing. Yes. It's quite magical as well. It's one of those things, I suppose, which you can analyze and you can discuss, but it's something that is really, it takes a particular attitude and a group of people working together. It doesn't sound like it's necessarily something that's easily done, an ongoing challenge, I guess. And maybe just to finish, if you want to maybe just talk a little bit about what's next for you. You mentioned this SDD project. Yeah. So I think actually I'm working with Ashoka on this and with Skoll and with Schwab. And there are around 50 other social entrepreneurs. And what we are all trying to do is to see what would be the best way to accelerate the SDGs and to achieve them. Because according to the Social Progress Index, we are not going to reach the SDGs by 2030 if we are going at the pace we are. So we'll probably reach it by 2090. So we as social entrepreneurs have the solutions and not just us, but so many people really, really want to make this happen. There's so much collective goodwill. And how can we mobilize this collective goodwill to sort of reach the SDGs by 2030, you know, to do away with poverty and all the other things? So what's next for CYFT, Jeru? What's next? Well, the CYFI team thought that for us, it was mission accomplished. Not that every child in the world had had social and financial education or economic citizen, or that every bank in the world had a banking product. But we had said we would be there to accelerate and institutionalize this whole concept. After seven years of working, we realized that that's what had happened. As I mentioned earlier, 80 countries were well on their way to making that happen. There were yet others who were in the process. We had been able to put it on the agenda of bodies like the OECD, of other bodies. So our role was coming to an end, or rather our role had diminishing marginal returns. 
we as an organization could then have shifted gears and become a technical support organization and started providing technical support to the governments and to the banks to do it. But then, as you know, for governments, that is a tender process and you have to apply. Or we could say mission accomplished and we want to shut down. We explored what would be best for countries and what emerged from a very honest consultation with our partners, and we didn't do it ourselves. We got a third party to do it, is that for them, they would come to us out of loyalty, but they would be able to sell and be able to move faster if they worked with bodies like the World Bank, OECD, etc. So we actually therefore decided our role was over. We were going to shut down. We created a very systematic process of over a year discussing and systematically what we call handing over, like I talked about with OECD, where we hand over Global Money Week to OECD. We are doing the same with some of the other things, our school bank, which was co-created with Aflatoon. We are handing it over to Aflatoon plus the World Savings Bank Institute, which was at the forefront of product creation, the Union of Arab Banks. So we are sort of handing this over to them. And each project is being looked at, or not project, but each team which helped make things move. We are systematically handing over and transferring assets with some amount of financial ability. So because we had the money to be able to make it smooth to the best extent possible. And I think it would be really nice that we shut our doors because we accomplished the role we set out to. And my message to most social entrepreneurs would be set your goal, set your message. And if you're doing systems change, be bold to shut down. And let us really talk about what we say, making ourselves redundant. That's it for me. Thank you. I wish you the very best of success with that, Giroux. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the great work that you're doing. What stood out for you in this interview, Odin? Three things. The most obvious one is that CYFI is actually shutting down, not because it went bankrupt, but because it has achieved its mission and is no longer needed as a separate entity. The remaining work can be done by the OECD and other agencies. Kevin Kelly famously said, institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. CYFI is a great reminder that the goal of a social venture should actually be to shut down as soon as possible or to take care of one systemic issue and then move on to the next. The second point is that we again heard about the power of collaborative systems change. With a comparatively small budget of about 1 million euro per year over a relatively short period of time, CYFI had a big effect on policy changes around children's financial education all around the world. Networks are so important that we encourage every social entrepreneur who participates in the Ashoka Globalizer program to include them in their impact strategies. And finally, Jeru's quote, uh, flush your ego down the toilet, I believe it was. That doesn't mean that as a social entrepreneur, you should be confident or self-aware. It just means that when you're engaged in collaborative systems change, there will be situations when our need for recognition for following a particular plan or for staying in control of decision-making can stand in the way of greater impact. Recognizing this tension and ultimately overcoming it is no small feat. 
It is an important part of becoming a systems entrepreneur, though. So we will come back to this issue in our next episode. Thank you, Odin. Thank you for listening to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. We hope you found it interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, please do help spread the word on social media. And also, we would love it if you could leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. If you'd like to find out more, please visit ashoka.org. The opinions in this podcast are personal and do not necessarily reflect Ashoka's position. Nothing said in this podcast should be interpreted as investment advice.